Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. So I don't know what you know about Bobby Bonilla or that name, but I will tell you what my experience with Bobby Bonilla is and was because it is something that is memorable to me from the very beginning of my journalism career. It's not just that he was a maximum professional when he was with the Marlins and was somebody who came with whatever reputation he came with to the Marlins. I got a maximum professional. It was many years before that when I was like a teenager, maybe in my early twenties, I'm just sort of starting my career. I get a chance at the Miami Herald and I don't really know what I'm doing, but they send me out for some reason to Pittsburgh and I got to do a story on Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds is someone that I don't know. This is pre-internet, really. I'm going to see Barry Bonds and I don't really know what I'm in for and I don't know how to do my job. And I just walk up to Barry Bonds in the Pirates locker room and just sort of start asking him questions like I'm entitled to questions. And Barry Bonds got very angry And for no reason at all other than he's a kind person, I'm assuming, Bobby Bonilla came and rescued a reporter who didn't know what he was doing by sort of making Barry back off because I don't you wouldn't have any way of remembering that, right? Bobby, thank you for joining us. And I just want to talk to you about a variety of different things. But there's no way you remember that because the the shit around Barry was always crazy. I don't remember that time, but you know what, I just looked out for a lot of people. And Barry's a great guy. Let's start with that. You know, I know him really well. He's a softy at heart, and uh, he probably didn't mean anything by it. And uh, like you just mentioned, you were new to, to journalism, and uh, you would you were figuring out your path and your road to do things. So it worked out all for the best. Bobby, you're talking to a stranger about what your childhood was like. You're describing the good and the bad? What are the things, the landmarks that you look at and say, okay, this is how I grew up? Well, you know, I grew up in the South Bronx, but I I have to say, Dan, my childhood was great. My friends were great. We all were in love with sports. My childhood was great. My dad was great. The the situation was, you know, he let me go out there and do my thing. Obviously, there were some rules I had to adhere to. Other than that, you know, I, I, there's nothing bad, I have to say, about growing up in the South Bronx. I have nothing but great memories. The most exciting thing for you in arriving with the Mets was the idea of your dad being able to see what his lifelong investment had produced, right? Yes, in a lot of ways. I, I wouldn't say it was a, a, a lifelong investment. My dad was very supportive. I mean, I didn't grow up in that travel baseball industry. Everything we did was pretty local. So a lot of the times, you know, my parents worked. So, you know, I was taking mass transit at eight years old and pretty good at getting around and uh, getting to baseball practices, though he would be there for the games, obviously. But when in terms of practice, uh, I would take the mass transit there and he would bring me home after and it was just great i didn't even think twice about it i had a bus pass or they gave me money for the bus and i just got on it with my uniform happy to wear my goya uniform and whatnot whatever team that was and 
go out there and, and play and learn the game. Mass transit at eight years old, you say it as if it's matter of fact, but the idea that you had the responsibility in your life at an early age, it's because your parents were working, right? And because there are difficulties in growing up in the South Bronx with your parents working. Yeah, well, both of them worked. So, and they were divorced at an early age. So I lived with my mom. My parents both lived in different locations, obviously, trying to coordinate my schedule along with my brothers and sisters was a bit challenging, but you know, the beauty of New York is it's mass transit, you know, system. I took buses and trains and uh, they were pretty confident that I would uh, be okay. I would say I probably started at eight, but when I was using mass transit, it was more when I was a preteen teenager. Can you explain sort of the emotion of, okay, you've signed with the Mets and now you're coming home and you're a big free agent. And your father is going to get to watch you in Shea Stadium. I believe I was probably a million dollars off of me staying because we did some uh, talks with uh, the California Angels. And it was wonderful. Everybody in that organization was fantastic. But my heart was set on playing in front of my dad. And if they would have come up with that uh, million dollars or so, I probably wouldn't have had the interview with the Mets. Obviously, that was uh, a time when that was a whole lot of money to a lot of people, and they couldn't believe I was receiving that kind of money. But I truly went there uh, so that my dad could watch me play. Even as volatile the time was there, I can always look back at about the third or fourth inning, and he'd be right there in his seats behind home plate, and I could just wink at him. And uh, it, it was everything for me. Wish I would have done a little bit better. I think there was a lot of factors in New York. A couple would be, you know, I don't think the Mets fans or the organization in general really ever got over losing Dwight and Strawberry. I mean, they were fantastic baseball players. And there was a love affair with the two of them, and rightly so. I mean, they were special. And I was coming in at at such a difficult time in, in their organization but the timing was right for me because my dad was able to watch me play at the professional level and i can't put a price on that i remember feeling when i was in the middle of it like the tabloids weren't very fair to you i imagined you going home and imagining it going one way where you're a hero coming home to play in front of your dad puerto rican guy south bronx mass transit growing up and then i remember man oh the tabloids are eating him up and i remember you smiling at your locker you're not going to get the smile off my face and that being something that people enjoyed sort of the star coming to new york a lot of pressure on the star in new york here's the media breathing on the star i'm not interested in recounting the details of that i'm just sort of interested in your take on the media and how you were treated and just how it felt to you to be covered at a time, a different time in baseball, Bobby, when you were a superstar. Baseball superstars mattered, and the tabloids were eating at your neck. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I was really, really excited about going, and I believe it was the onset of uh, WFAN. It was 24-hour radio was was up and coming. It was uh, instantaneous reporting, and the news got to them right away. And uh, I think I did Mike and the Mad Dog, and uh, it was great to do them. And, uh, and I said something like, you can't wipe this smile off my face. Not really knowing that they were going to take that literally. 
but they did. But the one thing, the, the, Dan, that the media can't say was even through all the troubled times, I wasn't at my locker for them. And I don't think you can find one reporter that was can say that I dodged any questions. I learned a lot, especially coming from Pittsburgh, where, you know, we only had one or two guys that covered us, as opposed to the 15 that covered the Mets, along with the WFAN and so on. So it was a very, very interesting time. And I really, I really wanted to play well. I might have overdid it a little bit, tried too hard, that led to some of the stuff. But it was still the fact that I could look back and see my dad in the seats that really made it worth all the things that I went through. What do you think the media could have done better, more humanely, more fairly? Like, I don't want to turn this into Bobby Bonilla complains about the media. I'm just curious of, like, just the human being I know, how would he have liked to have been treated more decently? It's me asking the question. It's not you volunteering uh, any sort of animus yeah, to the Dan, media. Listen, I, they, they weren't going to be any harder on me than I was going to be on myself. I certainly wanted to live up to the, the money I was getting. So that wasn't uh, the problem. Uh, some of it was probably self-induced by me. I'd have to really go back and look at all the situations. But again, it's just one of those things where it's trial and error. It takes a little something to learn New York, the New York media. I can handle it pretty well. When I got one to two years in with the Mets, I started to figure it out. Uh, make sure you give them time, regardless of what they're going to say. I learned that. In my mind, I would say, listen, regardless of what they say, you're going to be a lot harder on you yourself than they will be. And I learned that probably after my second year, because I spent four years there, I believe, before I was traded. And then I went through, obviously, the strike year in 94. That was another interesting thing uh, with the media. But I learned to handle it and, uh, and it helped me. And with the Marlins, and I always gave them time. Bobby, I didn't understand, though. Stuff. I didn't understand that you had this reputation that you came to the Marlins with, and I never saw that person. Yeah, I don't. That, that's why I mentioned I don't believe that one person in the media in New York can say that I didn't give them time. I started by saying that. That's the one thing they can't say. Oh, well, Bobby left after this, or Bobby left after that. He didn't give us, you know, a half an hour so that we know uh, what happened in particular situations. I waited by my locker, you know, because sometimes I was asked questions even when I wasn't particularly maybe the star of that game. But I knew if I left, it can cause problems. And that just comes with experience. And then once everybody, the media started filtering out, then I can shower, leave, and do everything. What do you regard as your single happiest year in professional baseball where you, the things came together, the friendships, everything. I know it's hard to pick, but you you just have to pick one. Oh, no, it, it wasn't hard to pick. I say out of the 17 years that I played, they were all wonderful except for one year with the New York Mets, and it was the Bobby Valentine years for myself. I, for some reason, we just did not see eye to eye in a lot of things. And I don't know why, to be quite honest with you. But the 16 other were phenomenal. And I got another kick out of being able to meet Clinton in the White House. That was another one. I couldn't believe I was handing him a jersey. So that was, that, if, if anything that stands out with me, that would be 
the one thing that I met, you know, President Clinton. As a champion. Ooh. As a champion. Yeah, I, that blew me away. I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? I'm, I'm from the South Bronx. I mean, I'm, I'm here handing this uh, two-term president a jersey. I didn't like writing that check to him, though. I told him that. <laughs> the retroactive tax thing that he implemented, <laughs> that wasn't any fun. But other than that, <laughs> going to the White House, and, and what's so funny, I actually wind up taking a tour with the family that the Secret Service, I believe, gave, which was great, seeing the bowling alley and the, and the garden, and just being able to walk through that prestigious building you know, that so few have been able to go into is such a thrill. But then handing the president of the United States to Jersey was uh, the biggest thrill. Uh, again, winning the World Series is very cool, Then Don't get me wrong. And, and I got to give a, uh, another shout out to Gloria Stefan for what she did for us during the World Series when she flew the Cuban food down to Cleveland. <laughs> you know, that's and the, those are the things that stood out in my mind. I mean, Gloria Stefan flew us home cooked. Oh my goodness. It was, it blows that. I would have to say those two things really stand out of my mind on my big league career. <laughs> Bill Clinton and Gloria Stefan <laughs> doing what she did. How lonely was that year where you're saying the one of the 17 that didn't feel quite like a privilege where you're not seeing eye to eye with the manager, the media is beating you up, uh, the pressures of the contract, what was the human inside you doing with everything that was surrounding you? How hard is that? Because I don't think people can understand well, the was, pressure of being yeah. the, paid like that in that city and people always associating you with a contract. Yeah, but it, what, what was so strange about that, that one difficult year, but I would always go back and say, what did I get myself into? Knowing that, but knowing I really wanted to be there to play in front of my father. That it's was really it's the crazy, though. Force. Bobby, it's crazy to think that you dreamt of one thing and then it, you turn around and like, how did it become this? How the hell did it become this? This was my <laughs> this was my dreams. Who doesn't love the story of winking at your dad from the batter's box after growing up in the South Bronx and becoming the hero star of the team? Like, who doesn't dream of that? Yeah. Well, again, that, that wasn't going to be possible at that particular time, especially with the Mets losing strawberry... And, and and Dwight, who were really two great number one picks for them, who were franchise players. The Mets were fortunate enough to have two of those. And don't get me wrong, their pitching staff with Cone and Sid Fernandez and Ron Darling and all the Bobby Ojeda, all those guys, they could all play. I don't want to leave anybody out, but the Mets had some pitchers, and they had some great athletes come through their organization. Dykstra, you know, Mark Carrion. You know, and so on. Kevin Mitchell. I mean, but the, the something there was a real love affair with, with Dwight and Strawberry. At that particular time, they left, and I wind up going in after that. And that might not have been the right time, but it was my opportunity. And all I could think about was making sure that I can wink at my father behind home plate and having him enjoy the experience with me. Uh, it was just, it was priceless for me. I'm sure they had a tough time at times having to deal with all the press that was being written. But I would tell them all the time, don't worry about it. It's all on me. You guys just enjoy yourself. I probably was one of the biggest season ticket holders, by the way, because I, I had everybody in my immediate family, my relatives, you know, my 
dads, brothers and sisters, they all had season tickets because I bought it for them. So nobody had to call me up and ask me for tickets. I just got it for them. And I gave it to them. They show up to games and whatnot. And uh, it was just great. But my father could walk in anytime. He got to know all the people in, in the front office and all the ushers and everybody. And they would save him his seats and he'd go back there and I'd be able to look at him and it was just great. So it wasn't lonely though? Well, no, I wouldn't say it was lonely. I mean, I was lucky enough to uh, have uh, Eddie Murray there, Saber Hagen, you know, Willie Randolph, people I could talk to. I actually wound up playing with Dwight uh, and they knew the ride was bumpy. But, you know, they had all experienced a little bumpiness in the road. So I wasn't the only one experiencing that uh, bumpiness, so to speak. You know, I can't say that I was singled out. I mean, it is the New York media. If you're not playing well, they ain't going to get you. And we weren't playing well, Dan. We just weren't. And uh, we couldn't seem to, to put it together. Again, there was high expectations. And when you don't meet those in New York, they, New Yorkers will let you know it. What came with money and fame that you weren't expecting? Well, I don't, I don't know about the fame part, because I just enjoyed playing the game. So I never really thought about that going hand in hand, the fame. I never really saw it that way. I just, playing the game was just such a privilege to play. In terms of the money, now that was challenging. But, you know, it's all about surrounding yourself with the right people, which is extremely difficult. And sometimes... The fan side of that, just don't understand how quickly someone can take advantage of you. But I was lucky to have Dennis Gilbert helping, guiding me there. I've had some people that have helped me manage what was given to me and, and just help me keep things into perspective. Because a lot, a lot of times you're so scared that you're going to lose it all. That I think that's more of a fear than anything else, Dan that, oh my goodness, what would they say about me if I just lost everything? And I think that's more of the fear. Bobby, I've always assumed that that check that you get every July 1st came from that fear, that you're like, look, this is challenging. All of this is very is. hard. And you're associated with that check for a million dollars, you know, till you turn 72 years old, I think. I, yeah. think, for, I think you're getting paid after Fernando Tatis's kid is being paid. <laughs> 14 years from now, you're still being paid. So, like, how did that yeah. all come to be? From afraid of losing money. You know, I knew there was a strike coming, so I talked to Dennis, and I said, "Dennis, I got, I got to put, I got to put money away. How do I, how am I going to do this?" So Dennis came up with a couple of options and brought it to the Mets, and some of them they liked, some of them they didn't like, and uh, Dennis could probably go a little more in depth in that situation than I can. But it was an, it was out of an absolute fear of losing everything and having to answer. What the hell did I do with all that money? It was very, it was very frightening. So explain it to me, though, because you see people are coming around. You don't know if you're confident in the shark world, business waters, cutthroat. What do I need to do financially? This is all new to me. I was undrafted. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a financial whiz. Like are there, people no. want my money. Like you know, I can see where all that would be scary. It's funny because, you know, Jay would, Horowitz would field a lot of phone calls, obviously. And, and Jay made a funny comment to me. He says, Bo, 
I think if you just took a helicopter and dropped some money in Central Park, that might solve all your problems. And I got I kind of got a chuckle out of that because, you know, of how many people were, were coming after me with ideas and restaurants and all kinds of business ventures. And uh, I, I, a lot of it, Dan, I had to, I had to do, I had to study a lot up on it. I can remember going to a rookie development program in Washington, D.C. for the rookies. And uh, we had uh, the people, the editor of Money Magazine come in. So now I'm interested in this, right? We're having this for the rookie program. And uh, I'm sitting down and I'm looking at all this. And the guy's mentioning, well, you can have money managers, but you should have a financial advisor. Now, I've had money managers then, but I had no financial advisor. So I went out. And I got a financial advisor, all because I went to a rookie development program in Washington, D.C., and the, and the uh, editor from uh, Money Magazine put on this uh, seminar for our rookies. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm, I'm already retired, and I didn't have a financial advisor. Oh, I, I'm, I spent a year looking for one, and the rest is history. Did you have any issues with trust? Uh, did you have any people rip you off? Like that's a, It seems like a nightmare to try to manage all of that stuff, Bobby, and the pressure of expectations and competing against others who are also very good at their job. Oh, the, oh the, yeah, listen, the talent that I was able to play with and against was extraordinary. And, uh, you know, the, the money started getting better. And all you wanted was these guys to make sure – they were surrounding themselves with the right people and nobody took advantage of them. And those, those were my concerns for the other guys that were coming in the big money that, you know, I just hope that none, none of them get taken advantage of. And um, I don't know of any stories of any other guys that played in my era that have had any problems with that, but hopefully nobody has. The new Mets owner, Steve Cohen, has suggested turning Bobby Bonilla Day into like a spectacle. I don't know if you've heard about this. July 1st, the check. I did. I did. I actually uh, received a, a text from uh, from Steve. We actually had uh, gone out to dinner once or twice in Greenwich. So I had known Steve before he bought the Mets. And uh, he sent me a text and he mentioned it. And I said, well... First, I said, I started by saying, congratulations, Steve, you know, uh, on your purchase of the New York Mets. And I said, uh, listen, bring home a winner for the hungry Mets fans. And uh, let me uh, sit on that a bit and think about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, that is, is it a day that's celebrated in your home? Is July 1st, uh, is Bobby Bonilla oh, Day a day to be celebrated in the home? <laughs> no, but I can tell you that's when my phone rings off the hook. And that's where I get the most, what is it called, memes or, or text messages of those regarding my, uh, my annuity on that particular day. It's been quite a, a hit. And little do everybody know that I actually put that money away out of fear of, uh, of losing money. 
a very reasonable human fear, by the way. Jay Horowitz was <laughs> oh, the was the old Mets public relations guy. I think I think that's instructive, Bobby. I don't think people think of you. People have associated you with money in sports in a way that I have found corrosive for a long time, and I don't think that they understand the thing that Jay Horowitz said to you. Your problems would leave, and you could have the serenity of the batter's box if you just took all your money by helicopter and dumped it in a park so you can concentrate on something else. That's exactly what he said. I said, you know what? I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head. My team is one win away, and I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge, and I'm going to get myself an ice-cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com Beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Can you explain where you were in your life when, in 1981... You're not drafted, and you're spending a semester at the New York Institute of Technology. Technology, yeah, that's right. That's a very good question. I mean, it was really funny. I went on a, a, a high school baseball all-star trip, so to speak. And on that trip was Sid Thrift, and, you know, on the plane rides and stuff, Sid asked me what I was doing. I said, I have no idea. I'd love to play. I'd love to play at the collegiate level. But I believe I only had one look at, I believe it was Iona College. I mean, it was way back, and I still had to maybe walk on there. And then two weeks after I got home from that trip, I had a tryout with the Pittsburgh Pirates that Sid Drift put together. And then it was in New Jersey. It felt like it was 110 degrees, and I did it. And then three weeks later, I was in Bradenton, Florida. And all of a sudden, everything started. And, you know, Woody Heike's the manager, and I'm down there, and all I see are such talented base. Everybody's an all-star. So it was a very eye-opening experience. So in a lot of ways, it really woke me up seeing all those guys at the minor league level, you know, just signing. And I signed really late. So it was like August. Of 81. Well, take me through that, though. How much doubt, how much fear do you have as you're meeting all these guys and you're like, whoa, these are pros. This is moving fast. I was not drafted. You know, there was no fear, Dan, but there was a lot of excitement that, oh, my gosh, I actually have a chance at going out there and following my dream. I couldn't believe it. I was still in shock. 
I was like, oh my goodness, you know. So I'm at Pirate City and I'm looking at all these pictures on the walls at Pirate City. And the dream can possibly come true, but there was also a wake-up call that, you know, these, these kids, all these kids can play. So my mindset was I was going to outwork them. And I can remember looking at a picture of George Mazza, who ran Pirate City at the time. I hope I get the names right. I don't want to really botch anything, but it was a long time ago. And I'm looking at Three Rivers, and they had a, a picture of, you know, right field, just the whole stadium. I said, you know, one day I'm going to hit one up there. In the third deck, that's how confident I was. And I was able to hit one in that third deck at uh, Three Rivers. So that was a pretty cool little thing that happened. What are some of the things that you know about Barry Bonds that we don't? He'll give you the shirt off his back if he knows you. A lot of times, Dan, people come up to him and it, because they've seen him on TV and they grew up with him. They feel like they know him. So they'll approach him, not really knowing him, and ask him to do a lot of things, and it, it kind of puts his guard up a little bit. But me and BB have a great relationship. We always have. He was a special player in Pittsburgh. Obviously, you could see the talent that he had. We obviously know why he was picked number one in the organization. That wasn't too hard to figure out. All he had to do was see him swing, and his plate presence when he stepped into the batter's box was amazing. I mean, he knew that strike zone as good as anybody. I was a bit of a free swinger, but his discipline at the plate led to where he's at today. Is there something this Bobby Bonilla would tell uh, Bobby Bonilla in the early years of his Pirates career that you'd want him to know? You know, I would probably take better care of myself with all the things I know today. Uh, Obviously, weight was an issue uh, for me. And, uh, you know, one of the years I wind up going to Duke's Diet and Fitness Center to get it under control. But I really didn't know anything about nutrition. I mean, I didn't hire a, a chef until I was almost 10 years into the big leagues. I probably should have done that making three, 400000 and hired that just to really take care of myself because the grind is real and the travel is, is intense. And I think if you, you, you take care of your body a little bit better, and I played 17 years, so I'm not going to, but I would have been able to play maybe 20 plus years if I'd have taken, not to say I was sloppy with it, but everything else was all a learning experience. And I wouldn't change it for anything. Even the bouts with the media, you know, they were all a learning experience. I'm going to ask you now, Bobby, a handful of not necessarily rapid-fire questions, but they're not meant to be expounded on. I just want to ask you some questions about some people in your career that you have faced or played with. So, the nastiest thing that Bobby Bonilla has ever seen come out of a human being's hand thrown toward him was thrown by blank. Oh, Kelly Downs. I had trouble picking up his forkball. He, he was a picture in San Francisco. It felt like when every every time he threw, it was right on top of me. <laughs> so every time you're going up there, do you feel at some point like I don't really have a chance here? Oh, my goodness. All I'm worried about is that I, I don't want to get hit in the face because I'm not picking up the ball. I'm just, I'm literally going, oh, please, just, if it's at your head, just get out the way. The single greatest talent I've ever seen in this sport not named Barry Bonds is blank. Barry Bonds. 
You there's no second place that you're because of course he's the best I've ever seen too. No, no, Dan. When, and I say this with a lot of love. I mean, you have Pujols, you have Trout, you have Cabrera. Cabrera won a triple crown for crying out loud. We don't talk about him enough, but it still doesn't match. And Barry Bonds and and Pujols's first eleven years are epic, and Barry Bonds is just that good. The best leader Bobby Bonilla has ever played with is named blank. Leland. The person that I respected the most in our sport was blank. Oh, Leland. You know what? I got I to gotta throw Bobby Cox in there, too. He was absolutely amazing my one year in Atlanta, just to be able to watch him do what he did. He was amazing. The funniest teammate I ever had was blank. <laughs> Oh, my goodness, the funniest. Oh, man, Dan, that's a good one. Ricky was fun. Oh, he was. He could keep you in stitches. Oh, please give me some Ricky Henderson stories. Please give me whatever you've got. Oh, please, Bobby, please. I'm begging you. Give me some of the give me. Please give me some of the good Ricky Henderson stories. I, 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 I can I can give you one. We're in Atlanta, and I believe Pat Mahomes, Ricky, and I think we're driving to the ballpark, and Ray Odonian. And the, the taxi driver says, oh, my God, I got Ricky Henderson in here. He recognizes Ricky right away. He recognizes me. He doesn't so much recognize Pat and, and Ray. So Ricky helps him out a little bit. He says, well, you know, we got, we got Pat Mahomes in the back. A wonderful picture, man, wonderful. And then he says, you don't know who this shortstop is? This is the baddest shortstop in the league. He says, how do you not know this? Ray Cadonez. I said, Ricky, <laughs> please tell me. I'm in the cab going, tell me. You've been with him all damn year, Ricky. Yeah, there's so please many. Please tell me. Oh, please tell me you didn't say Cadonez. It's Ray Odonez. Yeah. <laughs> Not Cadonez. Me and Pat, Pat Mahomes could ride Ricky pretty good. And we just stopped. We didn't let him stop. Bobby, thank you for making the time for us. I do appreciate you spending it with us. Oh, my God, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com slash Beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.